This morning from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, we'll read verse 35 and then move to 41 through 51. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Then the Jews began to complain about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not complain among yourselves. No one can come to me unless drawn by the Father who sent me, and I will raise that person up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is the Word of God for the people of God. We began reading earlier in chapter 6 last week. This is a part of the same conversation. You may remember if you were here that I told you these people have gone to great lengths to follow Jesus. They were with Him in one place and then they had to cross the sea to another to find Him because they wanted to draw closer to Him. They wanted to hear more about what He had to say about what God was doing in the world and what God was doing through Him. But then in the passage today, John introduces to us in verse 41 a new group. As a shorthand, he uses the phrase, the Jews. But not only in this passage, John uses that throughout his Gospel. It's a shorthand usually to refer to leaders of the local synagogue or a local group of Jews, maybe Pharisees or Sadducees. What we should realize though, that all these people involved in this discussion are Jews. Not just those who are complaining, but of course you remember Jesus was a Jew, the twelve disciples are Jews, probably the whole crowd are Jewish people, and the local authorities who are arguing with Jesus in a, sense, in, a, in a sense are also Jews. But just like today, within our church, within our denomination, within Christianity, there's a variety of interpretations, differences in understanding and what emphasis is most important in terms of faith. There's those same differences in first century Judaism as they dispute with one another and talk about what's most important in faith or what speaks to them the most or what they think one should emphasize. So what we have read this morning is a Jewish family dispute. Different people of faith disputing 
what God is doing in their life and through their faith experience. But we make a mistake if we overlay our time and think of this as if Christians are arguing with Jews. There was no such distinction in that time. These are all people of Jewish faith trying to discern who God is and what God is doing among them. Now, it's helpful to recall last week and what we were talking about and that I suggested to you that what Jesus was saying to those who came to listen to Him was that believing that God is at work in the world is a first step. Is an important first step to believe that God is indeed alive and at work in our world. If you want to have greater, vital, spiritual life, Jesus says you've got to believe. You have to believe that there is a God and that God is at work. But then in this passage today, as the conversation continues, He draws on this image of bread once again. But it's not only physical bread that sustains us, but Jesus uses the term and refers back to an earlier time in the life of faith when God had acted and worked within the community of the Jewish faithful, when He begins to talk about bread and manna in the wilderness, all of those Jews would know what He's talking about. You can read about it in Exodus 3 if you don't recall, but it was that time when Moses was being called by God to leave where he was and go back to Egypt to deliver those who were in slavery. Moses didn't really want to go. He wasn't really sure he was the person for the job, so he put up all kinds of objections. Finally, he says back to God, okay, if I go, I have to tell them who is sending me. What is your name? And in Exodus 3, it tells us that God says, I am who I am. Tell them, I am sent you. Everybody hearing Jesus that day would have known that story. It's important for us to realize that Jesus is drawing on that tradition when He is talking about the bread of life. Hear what He says in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me will never be hungry. And whoever believes in Me will never be thirsty. He is saying the God who worked before is at work right now. He's moving the action of God from the past only up into their very own time, into their own lives. Jesus says the first step is believing that God is at work in the world. Jesus says the next step is believing that God is at work in Him. That God is at work in the present moment. That's when the local authorities begin to balk. That's the sticking point. They're not sure, but it sure sounds like Jesus is equating Himself with God in a way that is unfathomable. And if we listen to what Jesus says with fresh ears, I think we would all have to agree that He is saying some very startling things in our passage today. Hear it again. He says to them, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to Me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in Me will never be thirsty. He is making claims of eternal significance. I mean, never is a very long time. And that's what He's saying. is that God is at work in an eternal way through Him. He goes on in the verses right after that that the lectionary skips, but in those He continues to talk that about He is the bread from heaven that God has sent Him, that He will be the bread of life. In fact, that through Him a person can experience eternal life. And then in the very last two verses that we read, verse 50 and 51, He ties this whole idea of bread of life and bread of heaven to His own body or His own flesh. Listen again. He says, This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is My flesh. What a magnificent claim Jesus is making about what God is doing through Him. But it's important for us to remember that when Jesus uses the phrase, I am... It is, in fact, an allusion to the very name of God out of the history of the Jewish people. Jesus says over and over, according to the Gospel of John, I am. I am the bread of life. I am living bread. There are several other places where He uses the same phrase that's used in Exodus about who God is and that God is present and working in the moment. He is claiming that God is working in Him in a specific way. If you are seeing Jesus only as a human, this is an unbelievable claim. How can He use that same inference that as God was present with Moses leading the people, that now God is present in Him in such a direct and powerful way? It is too much. For the people of the day who are leading in that particular part of the world to understand how He can make such claims of eternity and divinity. You can hear it as John records it in verse 42. It says they are saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can He now say, I have come down from heaven? One of you recently sent me a cartoon. It showed three donkeys, three women on the donkeys. On the hindquarters of the first donkey, there's a bumper sticker. It says, my son is an honor student. (laughs) On the next one, it says, my son is in medical school. On the third one, there's another sticker It says, My son is the Son of God. And out of the mouth of one of the women it says, well, if it isn't Mary and Joseph. It's an inconceivable claim to think about what God is doing in Christ. It goes against common sense and our common understanding 
of human life. And yet the Gospels claim that God has done something of special significance in Jesus of Nazareth. And yet you can understand as you read it carefully how outlandish, how unbelievable, how inconceivable it would be for someone that you know to say these kinds of things. To make those kinds of claims. I've been reading a book recently by Daniel H. Pink. I put the title in your outline. When the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. In the book, he takes on several things that we think we know and then shows the research which contradicts that. So in your outline, I put blank is the most important meal of the day. And if you're reading ahead, I guess you put breakfast. But he says that's not the right answer. He says lots of people have tried to confirm the difference between those who eat breakfast and those who don't in terms of energy or productivity or mental activity. They cannot make a connection. But he says, you know what? They have found lunch. Lunch is the most important meal of the day. Because he says they can make the connection that for those who don't eat lunch, they have a hard time during the afternoon all the way into the evening. But those who eat lunch, their energy is higher. Their productivity is higher. Their mental activity is more concentrated. They do better. He says, we think breakfast is the most important meal of the day, but the research shows lunch is the most important meal of the day. But he not only takes on that, he takes on elementary education and this move as of late to begin to shorten or eliminate recesses for young children in school, saying they need more classroom time so that we can have better learning and higher test scores. But let me read to you his conclusion. He says, years of research show that recess benefits school children in just about every realm of their young lives. Kids who have recess work harder, fidget less, and focus more intently. They often earn better grades than those with fewer recesses. They develop better social skills, show greater empathy, and cause fewer disruptions. They even eat healthier food. In short, if you want kids to flourish, let them leave the classroom. But he says it's not only true for kids, it's true for adults as well. He's looked at research across a variety of different fields, careers if you will, and he's found that people who are the best in that area or the most professional or the most expert do some things differently. He says the common wisdom, what most people think when asked, the people who achieve the most, how do they approach their day? And the people answer, oh, they power through. They really attack it. They don't break. They just work, work, work. He says, no. Those are not the people who do the best. He says those who are most productive take breaks or have recess, if you will. He says the most productive way to approach your day is like this. Focus intently for 45 to 90 minutes and then take a break. Get away from your desk or your place of work. Get some fresh air. Get a drink of water or coffee. Do something else for a few minutes and then come back and go again. 
he writes about these studies. He says one factor that distinguished the best from the rest is that they took complete breaks during the afternoon. Many even napped as part of their routine, whereas the non-experts were less rigorous about pauses. His closing phrase on this I thought was pithy. He said, pause like a pro and you might become one. Now I think that's interesting, but I share this with you because it presents information, kind of counterintuitive information. Things that go against the grain or against common sense or wisdom that we all think we have. And yet I can see the truth in it. The research indicates that it's true. So when I think of inconceivable things in faith, this can help me. When I can think about what God has done in Christ, which at first seems unbelievable or inconceivable, it helps me grasp the revelation of God in Christ. So easy to begin to think of God as far away, as transcendent and eternal and therefore inaccessible, a God who does not care about us. But in this Gospel passage today, Jesus says, No, God has sent me so that you might know that I am close, that I care, that I'm available to you. Jesus says, I have come as the bread of life, as the bread of heaven. And for those who will believe, it leads to life abundant and life eternal. Jesus comes to give life to the world, to bring the presence of God close. John has already made this point, really. He begins his Gospel making this case in what's called the prologue, those first 18 verses of John. He makes a powerful witness to this. I want to read you a few of those verses as we close today. This is what John writes at the very beginning of his Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and without Him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in Him was life. And the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And then it goes on to all who receive Him, who believed in His name. He gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but born of God. And the Word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory as of a Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God the Son who is close to the Father's heart, who has made God known to us. Thanks be to God. Amen.